Let us pray. God and our Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us enough to reveal to us all that we need to know to be reconciled with our Creator, Lord. We ask that you would open our ears this morning, open our eyes to your truth. Lord, we ask that it would transform our minds, edify us, and rebuke us as necessary. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. me in the Gospel of Mark once again. Mark chapter 3. We're picking up in verse 20, reading through the end of the chapter. Many of you know the blessing of a faith that's shared with your extended family. Many of you know that blessing. Uh, you grew up with parents who, who taught you the, the Word of God, who, who modeled for you the blessing of loving the Lord, of fearing Him, of serving Him. But for many others, your family of origin is different from that. You didn't grow up under the grace of the gospel. In fact, perhaps your extended family has been a source of strife, a source of difficulty, maybe even a source of persecution for you when it comes to living out your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've even been accused of wrongdoing by your own family members because of your devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people. In our text today, we're going to witness a contrast between three different families. In the second half of Mark's, of the third chapter of Mark's gospel, the three different families represented here in this text. And we see a contrast here, and they all respond very differently to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They respond differently to Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And before I read our passage, I want to I highlight for you, Mark uses a literary technique that's, that's helpful when we can understand what he's doing here. It's, it's intentional. He uses a literary technique called intercalation, or if you want something that's less technical, he uses a sandwich. It's often known just as a sandwich technique. And what this means is he begins a story, he interrupts that story with a different story, and then he comes back to the first story. And so what we're going to see is he begins a narration about Jesus' family coming to him. Then that is, in a sense, interrupted. It's almost like the camera just suddenly pans over here and looks at a scene with the scribes, and then he comes back to his family. Now, what's the point of that? Why, why does he do that? Sometimes we do that just because we get distracted in, in a, telling a story. And we lose track of where was I? But that, this is intentional. It's intentional. And, and it's important because the effect is to demonstrate how these two work together. So think about it like a sandwich. It's appropriate. Some of you are old enough to remember the great Wendy's campaign of the mid-80s. Where's the beef? Remember that one? Now, what's the point? The, here's the little old lady who's staring at this massive bun with just a tiny little thing and says, where's the beef? And it became an instant success. Wendy's, Wendy's sales surged 31% the year they launched the campaign. But the reason it resonated, I think, is because people intuitively know that the bread and the meat are supposed to work together. In a sense, one interprets the other, doesn't it? 
you could have a really, we had hamburgers last night at dinner, so I'm going to get your salivary glands going good. You know, when you, when you have a really good, juicy hamburger patty, but bad bun, it just kind of spoils it, doesn't it? On the other hand, you got this fresh, homemade bun, but where's the beef? And it doesn't work. And so as we, the, the, the bread, in a sense, and the, and the meat interpret one another, don't they, in our mouths, in the whole culinary experience. Well, this literary device, the sandwich, accomplishes something similar, now that I've got you hungry. You can listen over your stomach growling and hear how Mark takes these two, these two different groups, melds them together, and shows us they're really not all that different after all. They're really not all that different after all. Mark's use of this sandwich technique here, he begins with Jesus' family. He interrupts that, looks at the scribes, and then comes back to his family. And what we're left with inevitably is sort of this compare and contrast. And we'll see both the similarities and the differences between these two groups. So there are three families here in the text. Jesus closes with a third family. What we're going to see, first of all, is Jesus' natural family, his earthly family, and their unbelief. Then we're going to see Satan's family and their accusations. Then we're going to see the Son of God, his family, and the blessings that abide in him. So Jesus' earthly family, or his natural family, we're going to see Satan's family, and we're going to see the Son of God's family. So have those three in mind, and, and notice, you'll notice that, that sandwich technique as I read the text. We'll pick up in verse 20, and it says, it begins with, then he went home. Well, home, according to chapter 2 and verse 1, is Capernaum. And so remember, last week, we saw them on a mountain. Jesus went up the mountain, and he appointed, he, in a sense, created the twelve. The crowds have been pressing in upon him. We saw at the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 3, this conspiracy that arose between the Jews and the Herodians to destroy him. So it's in the backdrop of those circumstances, the crowd pressing in upon him, this, this religious, political conspiracy against him. And it's in that setting that we're told, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem kept on saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty 
of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord bless us and help us in the reading of his word. Notice in the first place, the very first thing that we observe in the text, beginning in verse 21, is his natural family. His natural family comes. They, they see, they hear about all the goings-on concerning Jesus. They've no doubt heard about the Herodian conspiracy to destroy him. They've no doubt heard and probably seen to some degree with their own eyes the crowds of people pressing in upon Jesus. But when they come to him, they come to him in unbelief. This is really remarkable, and it's kind of hard to even comprehend. Brothers that had known Jesus for decades, his own mother, who, who, who knew by angelic testimony from before his birth that he was the Son of God. When he was 12 years of age, and there was the mix-up on the caravan, as and Luke records for us, as they were traveling back from Jerusalem from the Passover, and, and the three days' journey, and Mary and Joseph realize he's missing. And they go back and they find him in the temple. And, and, and as moms would do, she, she confronts him. And he says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And, that, and Luke tells us that Mary took these things. She contemplated these things in her heart. And yet, there still was not belief here. She was still wrestling with these things. Now, let's, let's think about what we, what we find here in the text. There are some symptoms or there are some indications of their unbelief. Assuming the best, assuming the best about his family, let's say they were concerned about his physical safety because the crowds, after all, were pressing in upon him and, and maybe they thought, well, he's physically in danger. Well, their unbelief showed that they were, they, were, they were prioritizing, if that were the case, they were prioritizing his physical safety over his mission. They were, they were prioritizing his temporal good over their own eternal good. But they also have something here that I think is, is noteworthy down in, in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. I think it's an intentional phrase that Mark uses. The only time calling is used throughout the Gospel of Mark, except for here, it's Jesus doing the calling. And of course, the contrast is we just saw him in the previous scene on a mountain calling the 12. He alone calls. And his own family presumed upon themselves and says, we have the authority to call him. We can summon him to ourselves. But I think the greater issue here, the greater indication of their unbelief, is they were coming to him because they believed him to be too zealous. They believed him to be too committed to the cause. And whether 
to preserve their own family honor because the reputation was, was being, their own family reputation was being trodden upon by these rumors and speculations about this new teacher who'd burst upon the scenes, who was stirring up trouble with the, the governing authorities, the religious rulers. They were uncomfortable with this whole situation. So his family heard it, and look what they said. They went out to seize him. This, was, this is a term of violence. This is not a term of going and, and meekly appealing to him or, or warning him or advising him to be more cautious. They go out to seize him, to take him by force. And look what they say. He is out of his mind. They say that he's out of his mind. They, they, they could not comprehend that their own son and brother could open himself to such public scrutiny, to such ridicule, and even potential harm by the crowds or by the Jewish authorities or by both. They could not comprehend what the apostles would later remember. John records for us in John chapter 2, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The saints, this isn't a once or one-time phenomenon. Jesus was not the only one accused of being out of his mind for the sake of God. Jesus is not the first one or the only one or the last one to be accused of being overzealous for the things of God. Their unbelief simply gave them no category to understand the words and the actions of Jesus. Listen to J.C. Ryle. These are, these are probing comments. Few things show the corruption of human nature more clearly than man's inability to understand zeal in religion. Zeal about money or science or war or commerce or business is intelligible to the world. In other words, they understand that. But zeal about religion is too often reckoned foolishness, fanaticism, and the sign of a weak mind. If a man injures his health by study or excessive attention to business, no fault is found. It is said he's a diligent man. But if he wears himself out with preaching or spends his whole time in doing good to other souls, the cry is raised, he is an enthusiast and overly righteous. The world has not changed. The things of the Spirit are always foolishness to the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Jesus knows the bitterness of our trials. Jesus feels for us. Jesus will give us help. Have you ever been in that circumstance? Some of you know. You know what it's like to be accused of being out of your mind. Maybe they didn't use exactly those words. Maybe it wasn't even explicit. All too often, isn't the implicit or it's kind of the passive-aggressive approach? Isn't that the more frequent way that we experience these kinds of things? Sometimes even from our own extended families. Has your own family ever accused you of being too religious, of being too devoted, of being too committed? Now, it's possible, I speak autobiographically here, it's possible that's because you're obnoxious. That's possible, isn't it? And some of us can sadly say, yeah, that, I've done that. The old cage stage, right? But often... It's not because you were personally offensive. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. And because of your devotion to him, other people look at you and say, you're out of your mind. 
I mean, maybe it's because of your unwavering commitment to the worship of God and to the Lord's day, and you've told family members, we won't be at the birthday party because we will be with the saints worshiping the triune God. Maybe it's because your family just doesn't understand the fact that you're committed to the souls of your children and you care far more about their souls and their eternal destiny than their academic pedigree. And your family says, you're out of your mind. Why would you not want to send them to Babylon? That's where the best education is. And you say, no. We will do the best we can with the resources that we have, but we will trust the Lord, and we will shape their minds and their hearts and their souls for the sake of Christ. And they say, you're crazy. They'll miss out on all these things. What about this? What about that? Maybe it's because you've refused to allow pagans to shape their minds and their hearts. Maybe it's your radical commitment to your own marriage and to purity within your marriage. And those around you say, well, that's, that's a bit much. You're out of your mind. That's, 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 that's too much devotion. Maybe for those of you who are unmarried, it's your refusal to, to even date those who are not in the Lord and those around you, your coworkers, your family members. Wait a minute. That's a little much, don't you think? Aren't you being too zealous for those things? In your own vocations, you, you will experience this if you haven't already. The ethics of the world are different from those that we find in the Scriptures. And your own coworkers, your customers, your vendors say, wait a minute, aren't you being a little too fanatical about these things? Are you being too careful about your ethics? Are you being too careful about honoring the moral law of God with respect to human sexuality? Isn't that a bit much? Aren't you out of your mind? Alexander McLaren gives us this insight. He says, it's the mark of the man who dwells with God that all the people whose portion is in this life alone with one consent say, he's beside himself. It's the mark of the man who says, I abide with God, and I walk according to his word. And the whole world, with one accord, with one consent, says he's out of his mind. To tell a world engrossed in self and low aims that one is sent from God to do his will and to spread it among men is the sure way to have all the heavy artillery and the lighter weapons of the world turned against one. The zealot who simply says, I stand on the word of God alone. I can do no other. Well, you're too radical. You're too much. Now, the question comes if you, maybe you haven't been accused of such things. Maybe not, we should not be so quick to celebrate if we haven't been accused in such ways. We've got to ask ourselves, honestly, introspectively, why not? Is it because I tend to compromise? Is it because I tend to go along to get along? And again, I've already said we don't want to be obnoxious personally. That's not our goal. That's not our aim. That's not our calling. But if we're unwilling to stand in those ordinary things of life, if we're unwilling to say, I can't do that, 
Because God, God's word says. That's forbidden. Or I must do these other positive duties because this is what the word of God requires me. Yes, but it's going to cost you so much and I'm willing to pay that price for Christ's sake. And the world says, you're out of your mind. For those who haven't experienced this from those near to them, don't forget, you are not greater than your master. No disciple is greater than his master. Our Lord said, I experienced persecution. You will experience persecution after me. If you've never borne the reproach for his sake by those close to you, are you willing to give that some thought? Are you willing to give that some, some, some careful consideration? Are you the kind of go-along-to-get-along Christian who settles ultimately for a false peace? One of my favorite quotes is from, uh, from Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and this is in his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And under the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Lloyd-Jones guards us, I think wisely, against a pursuit of false peace. He says this, these easygoing, peace-at-any-price people are often lacking in a sense of justice and righteousness. They do not stand where they should stand. Your true peacemaker is not an appeaser, as we say today. You can postpone war by appeasement, but it generally means that you are doing something that is unjust and unrighteous in order to avoid war. The mere of avoidance of a war does not make peace. It does not solve the problem. Are we false peacemakers? Are we willing to settle for something less than true peace just because we want to avoid a conflict? So here we have the natural family of Christ shown to us and sadly shown to us in unbelief, in their unbelief. Now, given that madness or insanity was often reckoned to be caused by demonic possession. Let's think about the next, the, this, how the story is interrupted. Because like Mark is very skillfully here showing to us that these two situations, the Jesus' natural family and the scribes who come from Jerusalem are different, but not as different as we might think at first glance. Jesus' family's accusation that he's out of his mind in the end maybe isn't that much different. Look, look back at verse 21. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. I think Mark is showing us those things are not, those accusations are not that different. Now there's a critical difference. There's a critical difference that I'll elaborate on both this week and, and more next time. One of the families, his natural family, appears to have acted ignorantly and from unbelief. The critical difference is the scribes, the family of Satan, did not act ignorantly. This was willful. So we see the unbelief of Jesus' family, but let's look here as the story's interrupted. Let's look at the middle of the sandwich the scribes who come down from Jerusalem and their accusations. Now, this is, this is no less than the family of Satan on display. This is, this, is, this is, and I'm not speaking with hyperbole, 
Jesus will later say that explicitly about these same men, that their father is the devil, and I'll show you that. Now, in the next sermon, I'm going to deal more particularly with what's often called the unpardonable sin, but I want to do that as a separate sermon. So I'll touch upon that here in a moment, but that's not going to be the sermon today. But I plan to deal with that unpardonable sin in more detail. But for today, I want to show how willful unbelief, willful unbelief is what marks this family, this household of Satan. James tells us in his, in his letter, chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even the demons believe. And so what we, what we observe here is a kind of demonic belief, where they understood full well who Jesus is, and they reject him. In fact, they lie about him. Now, let's set the stage here. I mean, you've got to have this, this scene in your mind. Up until this point, Jesus had been dealing with Jews at the local synagogues, predominantly the synagogue in Capernaum, where he goes into the synagogue and he healed the man with the withered hand, for example, on the Sabbath day, and the Jews got very upset with him. Well, this was the Jews at a local synagogue. But what's happening here is the scribes who, listen to the way that Mark describes it, they came down from Jerusalem. This is a formal, official delegation. So what we're going to read here, and the language that Mark uses, the verb that he uses in, in, in the, the original language, is that they kept on saying this. This was a repeated accusation. They didn't come one time and say, he's possessed by Beelzebub. They didn't come one time and say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. This was their repeated mantra. And we can think of it this way. They're no longer contending with local Jewish authorities, but with the big dogs from Jerusalem. No longer is the contention with the local sheriff. The feds have shown up. That's what's happening here. The, 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 the federales have come, and they're coming with official dogma from Jerusalem. They're not coming with their own private opinions. This is a formal diplomatic delegation of conspirators with the Herodians, and this is the formal proclamation. They kept on saying these lies. They claimed that they had the authority to evaluate the ministry of Jesus Christ. That was a lie. They did not possess this authority. But secondly, and more importantly, they lied about the source of Jesus' power. They recognized, they didn't doubt the validity. They didn't come back and say, well, those demons weren't really cast out after all. They never said, the man with the withered hand, well, it's like a Benny Hinn es you know, uh, escapade, and he's not really healed. They didn't say that, did they? They said, he did these things. The same thing that everybody in the crowd witnessed, but you know where he, where he got the power? From the devil. That was a lie, and they knew it was a lie. But see, it's not merely a lie. As I said, it's official dogma. In fact, more, more precisely, to use somewhat of an anachronistic term, I'm going to use a modern term and apply it here, this is propaganda. This is official propaganda. So from henceforth, anybody who would say otherwise was guilty of what? Misinformation, disinformation. See, this isn't new. It's as old as time. Here the official party line was, 
He's possessed by Beelzebul, the devil. He's doing these deeds by the power of Satan. They all recognize that it, it was beyond human power to heal. It was beyond human power to cast out a demon. It was beyond human power to do what everybody knew Jesus had done. And so the only answer they could came up with from their deceitful, lying, wicked hearts was to say, the devil did it. That's what makes this damnable. That's what makes this unforgivable, is that they knew these were lies. They knew this was the power of God. And they attributed it to Satan. So now that any voice to the contrary was officially labeled as deceptive, is contrary to the party line, is contrary to the status quo. See, they're drawing lines here, aren't they? And both Matthew and Luke record that in this very occasion, Jesus calls them out on their insincerity. Mark doesn't quote this, but both Matthew and Luke do. Listen to Luke. He says, he's quoting Jesus, and if Satan also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. See, it was sort of a cottage industry where the scribes would, would take to themselves the authority to cast out demons. And Jesus says, your disciples do this. Your sons cast demons out. By what power do they do it? See, he knew that this was a lie, and he knew that they knew it was a lie. See, Satan's household is marked by willful, belligerent, deceptive unbelief. This was not ignorance, as his family demonstrated. It was willful. In fact, the scribes asserted the loudest that they believed in God. They asserted in, in, in very public ways that they were the most righteous. They asserted publicly and widely that they are the ones who ought to be listened to as religious authorities. But how does Jesus think about that? I think the answer very clearly is expressed to us in John's Gospel. If you turn with me to John, chapter 8. John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 39. So here's this, this exchange with Jesus and the Jews there. And Jesus had just said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And they took issue with it. They were offended. We are sons of Abraham. I mean, you could, you could go down to the local laboratory Draw our blood, test it, and you will see that we are genetic descendants of Abraham. We've never been a slave to anyone. Well, first problem is a historical one, isn't it? Because they have been slaves before, haven't they? They were called out of slavery by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord himself. So historically, they're wrong. But theologically, they're wrong, and Jesus calls them on this. So in verse 38... Or verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now, 
you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. See, that's the ad hominem attack. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Could it be any more plain? What Jesus thinks about their parental lineage, what he thinks about their professed heritage in Abraham. And now we come back to Mark chapter 3, and it becomes even more abundantly clear. This is, this is not merely a human scuffle. This is not merely an earthly dispute. The delegation that comes are representatives of the household, the family, the fatherhood of Satan. And they're coming with their lies because that's what Satan does. That's who he is. Jesus says this comes out of his own character. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. There's no truth in him. Brothers and sisters, the family of Satan has not changed. It hasn't changed. The father of lies and all his family continue to pretend religious devotion. We can see this around us, don't we? Some of the most vile, wicked people in history have made claims that they were doing things on behalf of God. Some of the most Wicked things that have happened in all of human history have been done in the name of religion. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And so there are those who continue to pretend religious devotion. They pretend morality. They tell you, you're out of your mind when you stand for what is true. And yet they're often very rotten, rotten to their very core. Many of us, many of the most vile deeds that we've ever seen or read about or heard about have been done in this name. And they represent the father of their lies. They represent the family of Satan. But there is a third family. Again, as the sandwich here is, is, is interrupted, we go from the Jesus' earthly natural family to the scribes who come representing the family of Satan, and we go back to his earthly family. We find there a third family, an eternal family, a blessed family. And here we see the son of God's family and the blessings that abide in him. We see the son of God's family contrasted 
against both his natural family, who was acting ignorantly and in unbelief, and the family of Satan, who was not acting ignorantly. Theirs was a willful unbelief. But notice here the, the blessings that abide, that attend to the family of the Son of God. We pick up in verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Notice Jesus' answer. See, here's where he sets the contrast. Who are my mother and brothers? It's a profound question, isn't it? And I think it's a question that, that every Christian needs to give very serious thought. Who are my brothers and sisters? Who, who is my deepest, truest family? Then he goes further and he looks around at those who sat around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we saw the things that characterized his natural family and their unbelief. We see the things that characterized Satan's family and their wickedness, their lies. What characterizes, what is consistent with, what abides with Jesus, the Son of God's true family? The first is faith, and it's a humble faith. Verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. At one point, Jesus is going back and forth with the Jews at another place in John chapter 6, and they ask, what's the will of God? They ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Remember Jesus' answer? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of the gospel, to believe in the one that God has sent. And if you turn back to John chapter 8, in that exchange with the Jews in which he called them, according to their, their, their true parentage, their demonic, devilish father, Jesus says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not from my own accord, but he sent me. He says, If I tell the truth, verse 46, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. So what is it? Jesus looks around the crowd, those who were gathered around him and said, the ones who are hearing me, the ones who are believing in me, that's my true family. That's the ones who belong to me. But also something else that characterizes his true family. Notice, Mark repeats this twice, and it's significant. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. And verse 33, and he answered, or verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him. 
Jesus, my true family is the one seated at my feet, hearing from me, listening to me, abiding in me, obeying my words, believing my words. The other characteristic of this true family of God that we see here in in this passage is that they rejected the accusations of the world and the critics of the gospel. Notice the potential harm, the potential cost to those who continue to sit there. I mean, the feds had come to town, and they had their official dogma. He is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out demons by the power of demons. Can you imagine the effect on the crowd at that point? I mean, Gideon. I think Gideon would have, would have been amazed at how quickly that crowd dispersed. And yet some remained. Some sat there and continued to listen to him, knowing that from this moment on, we do, do so at our own risk. To continue to listen to this teacher, to continue to believe his words, to continue to follow after his pattern and his teaching, we face at best social ostracism. At worst, completely being cut off from our families, from our livelihoods, maybe even put to death for blasphemy. Because that's the accusation, the official government-sponsored accusation. But the other thing we find, back up to verse 28, and I've skipped over this paragraph because I'm going to come back to it next time, but he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Those who belong to the family of the Son of God have all of their sins forgiven. All of them as far as the east is from the west. Jesus, not only those things that have already happened in ignorance and unbelief, even those things that continue to plague you, the weakness, the frailty of your flesh, even your stubborn disobedience to your God, all that will be forgiven, even blasphemy. To which the Apostle Paul says, Amen. Praise be to God. Paul said, I was once a violent persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. But grace was given to me because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. We also see here in verse 29, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. See, Jesus brings up the fact that this dilemma, this identity, this point of identity, which family are you part of, that that source of identity or that, that point of identity is not just for the here and now. It, it doesn't mean something only in this age, but far more importantly in the age to come. Those who reject me, those who reject my word, those who reject God in me are guilty of an eternal sin with eternal consequences. But the flip side of that also is true. For those who are members of the household of God, those who've come to Jesus Christ through faith in him and him alone have eternal life. Rather than eternal sin, 
eternal punishment, have eternal blessedness in Him. Eternal life in Him. Eternal joy in Him. We find also there is a degree of fellowship in the true family of God that the world will never understand. Jesus says there in verse 35, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In a mysterious way, in a way that is incomprehensible, the eternal bliss, the eternal fellowship of the triune God is shared with human beings through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit. I can't explain that further to you. I can tell you this is what the Word of God teaches. That what existed from eternity, perfect, unadulterated, unhindered, unbroken fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we get to share in that. We get to participate in that. As we gather week by week, and we gather under under Christ and under His Word, by the power of His Spirit, under the ordinances that He's given to us as His church, we, we are having a foretaste of what will be ours for eternity. To behold our Savior face to face, and in Him, to have fellowship with our triune God. So Jesus, when he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's saying something that is, that is awesome and incomprehensible. Jesus' natural family was, was willing to identify with him, but they, they made excuses for him. They said he's out of his mind. They, they were unwilling to bear any kind of cost to be associated with him. The family of Satan pretended to devotion to God, but, but they rejected Jesus outright. In fact, they lied about him. They said Beelzebul was the source of his power. But the true family, the spiritual family of the Lord Jesus, receives infinite blessing both in this life and in the life to come. We'll look at this a little bit more carefully next time, but when Jesus says here, in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What are these goods that the strong man plunders? Here's a graphic image of a strong man going into another man's house, tying him up and taking his goods. What, what, what are the goods about which Jesus speaks here? It's not material. It's human. If you are in Christ, you are the spoil of Christ's victory. If you are in Christ, you have been set free. The strong man was bound on your behalf, and you were ransomed. That's why Paul says to the Colossian church, you were you were transferred, I'm sorry, to Philippi. You were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own Son. If we begin to wrap our heads around this, the doctrine of adoption just explodes, doesn't it? 
he went into one house and he tied up the abusive father of lies. And he took what from eternity rightly belonged to him and said, that one is mine forever, irrevocably, immutably mine. And upon that one, now I bestow all of my kingdom, all of my blessings, all of me. And this is why in Hebrews 2, the, the, the apostle here just, just bursts forth. He says, it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Not ashamed to call them sisters. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Saints, Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. And He is also your big brother. And what the Word of God tells us, if, if you are in Christ, if you are a member of His household by faith, He's not ashamed of you. In fact, the Scriptures say that right now, in the midst of the congregation, He is singing your praise. Now, if your conscience has any measure of tenderness at all, you immediately recognize that you're not worthy of anyone singing your praise. There's nothing inherent to you that would make it worthwhile for even a man to sing your praise, much less for the risen and exalted Savior of men. That's exactly what we find here. For those who believe him, those who believe in his work, those who believe the gospel of his kingdom, Jesus, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister in the midst of the congregation. I will own you. In fact, more than that, I will sing your praise. Do you know such a redeemer? Do you know such a savior? We have before us three families. And, and, and to some degree, we probably can all recognize and identify all three. We should recognize them. But which one are you a member of? Are you the skeptic? The one who believes the lies, repeats the lies? Are you the one who says, well, I want to be in Christ, but I don't want to be too serious about it. Some of those people are crazy. They're too devoted. They're out of their minds. Seeking to, to open their Bibles and, and obey everything it says. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. Or the one who sits at the feet of Jesus says, I, I delight in the fact that he owns me as a brother, that he owns me as a sister, that I am his and he is mine. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful.
grateful, Lord, that you've made yourself known to us infallibly, certainly, sufficiently, on the pages of your Holy Scripture. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will press these things in upon our minds, upon our consciences. Grant to us the grace of of inward discernment. Grant to us the grace to see those ways in which we're tempted to compromise, where we're tempted to think that people who are wholly devoted to you are crazy or too zealous or just a bit off. Help us to seek the Lord Jesus Christ to rest in Him, to be found in Him, to be owned by Him. Help us to be wise, to resist, and to to identify the family of Satan. Lord, we know that He is active in this world. We know that He is a deceiver and the father of lies. But we also know that by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's been bound. He's a defeated foe. And he has no power, no sway, no control over your people. We pray that we would fear you as our God and flee from the devil and from his family. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.